Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, so if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at patreon.com slash I Love That Movie. And I want to take a moment to thank our top patrons, and they are Chris Balga, Jeff Whitman, Phil Barker, Michael Cross. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. Uh, and if you sign up, you do get a weekly bonus episode, just everything else that I'm watching that week besides these movies. Um, and if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. And I want to welcome back a guest that um, I really appreciate, but you haven't heard in a little minute, in a hot minute. I have Tim Rooney on the podcast. Say hi, Tim. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me back. Um, I-, I take the blame of not being proactive and asking like, hey, can I be back on the showtime anytime <laughs> soon? So don't feel bad. That's on me. No, no worries. I know sometimes we have busy schedules too, so things happen, but I'm glad to have you back. Uh, if people haven't heard you on the podcast before, um, you know, w- w- go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit. Hi, my name is Tam Rooney. I am a filmmaker and podcaster from Long Island, New York. Uh, you can find my shows, uh, Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show, part of the Real Fans for Real Movies Podcast Network, where I talk about movies when it comes to anniversaries. And my personal show, the Anything Goes podcast, which talks about geek and pop culture, a variety of topics that is not as frequent as Please Rewind, but it's far more varied in its subject matter. And my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Through the Lens Productions, where my latest video that's up there is actually a teaser trailer for a short film I'm working on called Where Smiling Sarah, which will lead to a feature film of the same name. And yeah, and if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on both on Twitter and Instagram at this is Tim Rooney. Rooney spelled R-O-O-N-E-Y. And just hit me up if you want to talk about movies, comic books, pop culture, all kind of stuff. I'm a, g- generally a pretty positive person, so you not have to hear the 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 sturm and drang of just like being a very negative person on social media that some people can get <laughs> when talking about geek stuff. So you yeah. don't have to worry about that. Yeah, great podcast. I've been on there a couple times myself, so definitely give it a listen on the Anything Goes podcast. Um, I uh, am glad to have you back, and as I've, I've told people, every time they come on, people say, when are you going to cover this movie or that movie? That's up to you. So my guest always picks the movie. What movie did you choose to talk about today? Uh, yeah, and, and it's funny, like... I gave you two options. Like, which one should we Oh, do? yeah. Well, that's and, that's different because you gave me a couple <laughs> options. I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, which one do you want to do? I'm like, shit. All right. Deflected that question back at me. I'm like, all right, fine. I'll I just don't to... want to be too, you know, I don't want to taint it. You know, I, I want it to be come from you. That's all. 
that, that, that totally makes sense right there. I was trying to uh, try to put off having to make a decision. I'm like, all right, fine. I, no, I, I got to be. I mean, that could also be why I did that. <laughs> uh, this week, we're talking about 1945's Mildred Pierce. Okay. Tell me. Um, well, actually, let me let me give our audience a little bit of a heads up. We don't do spoiler free here. This is a spoil. This is a spoiler filled zone. So, if you haven't seen the movie yet, I recommend going and seeing it. You can actually find it on HBO Max if you happen to be a subscriber. Um, I will read the synopsis real quick, and then we're going to kind of dive into the sort of the nitty gritty of of the movie. Um, here we go. Synopsis of Mildred Pierce. When Mildred Pierce's wealthy husband leaves her for another woman, Mildred decides to raise her two daughters on her own. Despite Mildred's financial success in the restaurant business, her oldest daughter, Vita, resents her mother for her degrading social status. In the midst of a police investigation after the death of her second husband, Mildred must evaluate her own freedom and her complicated relationship with her daughter, Vita. That's pretty much it in a nutshell, but uh, what's your history with this movie? When, when did you first see it? Well, I have become obsessed with the life and career of the filmmaker Michael Curtiz, the one who directed this movie. Mm. And to the point that I even got like his biography actually sitting right next to me by oh, Alan nice. K. Road. Yeah, it's called uh, Life in Film. And it's you may not recognize the name because he's not as like well known like outside of like really movie circles. Like it out like for he's not a household name like Alfred Hitchcock, John Ford, right. Orson right. Wells, who were his contemporaries at the time. But Cortez has made some of the best movies ever made. And I know Maybe the best movie ever made to some. Arguably I mean, the, right? yeah, with Casablanca. And that's mm -hmm. just one of the numerous movies he made for Warner Brothers because he was one of Warner Brothers' like go-to guys when it comes to making movies. And you would think like, oh, he would just be churning movies out. It, like there's a joke in a documentary they have, like if it's on the, you can probably find it on YouTube or it's on your Casablanca Blu-ray. It's like the greatest director you've never heard of. And when it came to Curtiz's uh, work habits, like he would finish a movie on Saturday, read a script on Sunday, and by Monday he'd have an idea how he'd want to make the movie. Mm -hmm. And he would do multiple movies a year. And like like I said before, he had done Casablanca, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Well, he finished it. Uh, he did Seawolf and... White and, Christmas um, too, right? Yeah, White Christmas. I mean, and some this, big, uh, big ones, yeah. Yeah, and so I like started like becoming all right. I want to find out more of his movies, and it's it's just lucky that a lot of his movies can be found uh, now uh, either cheap on DVD or on Blu-ray because the Warner Archive is a, is a wonderful thing. And I was just going through his movies, and I'm like, all right, Mildred Pierce seems to be a popular one, so I looked in Mildred Pierce uh, movie. And it came up specifically with the Criterion Collection. And I'm like, okay, if it has enough prestige to be part of the Criterion Collection, I feel like I should really check this out. So I bought it, signed on scene. I hadn't seen it before. And I just bought the movie and was, I was even more blown away by the movie itself because of how it is a film noir. It is a melodrama, but the fact that it is is not as you would say like i want to say stereotypical or and that it's like a little bit of anachronistic of film noir and it's like all right it is a melodrama and it is a crime story but it's not as like i would say oppressive as like the the 
as something like the big sleep or any like right, the, right. the the atypical ones at the time or and the fact that it's it's a f- female-led movie and, and it, it, she's a, a strong woman and back in the 1940s it was a rarity which is a sad state of affairs yeah i think that struck me about this movie is that she's really kind of i mean it is an interesting lens on her role as a woman in that world at that time it seemed to be commenting on a lot of different things because pretty much every guy in her life is sort of after something from her and she's constantly having to deflect all that and then even with her daughter um it it is an interesting take on it's kind of like a noir film but all focused on her and she's not a femme fatale which is like what you know (laughs) like just such an interesting take on that genre to me um i had never seen this film before so the first time you suggested it is the first time I'd ever seen it. And I was kind of worried. I'm wondering like how this would go over. I'm just like, because obviously there's very actions that certain men take in Mildred's life. That's obviously a very faux pas today. And I'm just wondering like, Oh, how's that going to play? And I remember I watched for the purposes of this podcast. I rewatched it. I watched it with my girlfriend. It was her first time seeing it. And I could just see her just getting angry at Wally. And she's like, (laughs) Oh God, like, like like but he's like at least wally's consistent he's not like he's just going after every woman around him like, he's True. just he's just obsessed with uh mildred which i guess is a positive question yeah mark. i i feel like i you know and maybe this is the lens that i'm watching it under a modern lens but it's like it almost felt like it was the movie seemed very empathetic to how she handled him you know like you see that she doesn't really have a choice in the world that she's in except to rely on these men that she's not in love with um but she kind of has to placate them constantly uh one of them she falls in love with for a little bit but wally in particular um but i also feel like maybe some of his actions are to place a little bit of doubt in your mind as to who the killer could be there he's part of the red herring so i think some of his bad behavior is so that you can later go well maybe he killed her second husband because i mean he's got an edge to him he's obsessed with her um you know just to add a little bit of mystery that's kind of how i read him I can totally see that. And the fact that he's actually probably the most physically imposing person in the entire right, movie. Right, he's the biggest dude, for sure. That other guy's, like, tiny compared to him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I, think it plays really well. Maybe even better than they intended it to. But that, that's my lens. And I want to save some of that for when we kind of talk more about it. But I, I also wanted to share, you know, as always, I, I do did a couple of quick facts um, on this movie. And so here, here we go. Here's a couple of them. Michael Curtis was initially less than keen with working uh, with has-been star Joan Crawford as she had a reputation for being difficult. Uh, Curtis was soon won over by her dedication and her hard work in her performance. So, you know, we all know Joan Crawford <laughs> has a little bit of a, you know, a lot of people my age and, and, and older and younger, probably too, probably remember my image of her is very tainted by the movie mommy dearest (laughs) uh, a movie that scarred me possibly for life (laughs) because as a child i didn't realize you know now it's kind of seen as sort of a campy a little bit over the top rendition and i think at the time when it came out too I, i feel like people weren't really listening to victims of domestic violence especially if the abuser was a woman um I think people had a hard time with that. And they had a hard time separating this idea of Joan Crawford, this wonderful actress that they liked with 
you know, her daughter saying she was awful to me. Um, so basically the opposite of the Joan Crawford character in this movie. Um, but, you know, to me, that movie seemed very real and very jarring. Um, but anyway, I can see from that and from, you know, she had, it sounds like a struggle with addiction, uh, among other things. And so she had this reputation for being difficult. But you can't deny that her performance in this movie is great. And I guess the director felt the same way. Right. I mean, because Curtis is known as a workaholic. I mean, like he hated lunch breaks because he always felt like it slowed the crew down because afterwards, after lunch is over, everybody's sluggish as they're digesting whatever food they had. <laughs> so he's like, ah, can we stop for food? Like, ah, you take an aspirin. We're going to keep going. Oh my and, gosh. How mean. Yeah, I, I like, love lunches. I'm the opposite of him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so he was always just like, kind of just like, if, if there's anybody's lack of days ago in his performance, he, he had like, he, in performance or crew member, he didn't care. It's like, all right, if you're not here to give your hundred percent to the project, like uh, you're, you're dragging us down. You're not uh, elevating us. But so I understand why you'd have that kind of hesitation coming in, but it would go on. I think they did a couple more movies after this. I mean, like it's one of the things that he is known for being very, driven and very it is very like i said like it is a very a taskmaster but if you if you guys work together well they would they would like oh no this is a good friendship there's a reason why he worked with bogart multiple times with cagney Mm. multiple times with errol flynn but also an, uh, an anecdote from the book is like the reason why he never challenged bogart or cagney is because curtis know they uh both of those men would knock him out uh, without trying so he couldn't <laughs> mess with them and the same thing with like Crawford because she was a force of nature and it's funny that you bring up mommy dearest because when I was pitching this movie to my girlfriend uh she says does this one have wire hangers in it and I'm like no 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 she did make other movies <laughs> besides mommy dearest <laughs> yeah or rather that movie was about her right um yeah I I uh yeah that's <laughs> I mean it's it's what we all think of Sorry, of course your girlfriend's on track there um also you know after seeing this film uh james and kane sent joan crawford a signed first edition of the original novel uh the inscription read to jane who brought mildred pierce to life just as i'd always hoped she would be and who is my li- and who has my lifelong gratitude so i didn't realize also that it was like a novel and uh again very a very compassionate look at the predicament she's in maybe sort of a commentary um, in some ways on, on women's place in the world and, you know, the thing ma- showing us like why they might make certain decisions and do certain things. But um, yeah. And this is going to be a weird comment. I hope it comes out the right way, but Joan Crawford looks different to me from what, who you would pick typically pick, I think for like her leading role. Do you, do you agree? Right. Because like, I guess you would argue that she's not a starlet, at least at this point. Yeah. That she's like, I, I say, now this is gonna sound kind of denigrating. Was <laughs> she's that older, material. She's Hollywood average. <laughs> right. I don't know, that sounds like a really oh, yeah, yeah. backhand no, way no, of she, saying that. Exactly. Like when you think of, I was watching a TikTok earlier of like them making Judy Judy Garland like change her nostril shape and wear fake teeth. Um, that's the kind of era we're talking about, where even pretty people aren't good enough. Um, so Joan Crawford to me doesn't look like a dazzling starlet, like you're saying, and she also. Um, she's not the warmest which is perfect for this part because we're supposed to sort of wonder if she did it or not um and she can't be like this wonderful doting um 
I mean, even though she is doting and kind, she doesn't have like a warm presence. And so, you know, all of that is kind of different about a leading lady. Yeah, because like if it, this movie would be different if it was somebody like Rita Hayworth or yeah. Elizabeth Taylor or even Lauren Bacall. But the fact that it is Joan Crawford that she is able to do the, uh, play it differently and it it definitely seems like you, with Mildred that she's obviously has a, a lot of obstacles throughout the movie, but she never seems like she's out of control. That's something that she can't handle. Mm-hmm. It'll be challenging. And that's where the drama comes from. It's like, all right, how can she deal with this? How can she become a waitress to then running her restaurant and then trying to raise her children in the best way possible while still maintaining this aura of high society in the eyes of her daughter? Yeah. And she, you know, I, I said, you know, what I was saying earlier about like, she's not like a femme fatale, but she sort of plays it like one, you know, she's got that air of mystery about her where, because it starts, you know, the movie opens up with a murder and we're wondering who did it. She's kind of got this edge to her in her performance the entire time where we're not entirely sure what she's thinking and feeling exactly. And so I, I don't know, just, it creates a very, like you're saying, a very nuanced performance overall. Right, and it's even more unique because of the era it came out in. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is just like, obviously, the novel was originally published in 1941, and this came out in 45. But it always seems like it's a critique of Rockwellian expectations of America. Right, like, like post World War II, taking jabs at American dreams, right there. Without a doubt, and it's like it's even. I don't know if it's because we're separated from it. It becomes even more apparent how unflattering the look at the uh american dream like you said how it is and how it could be it it could be very corruptible yeah and you know we have a woman who's sort of doing everything right and trying so hard to maintain appearances but all these obstacles in her way constantly that aren't really as present today uh the film's release was deliberately held back until 1945 in the hopes it would find a more sympathetic audience in a post-war atmosphere. So kind of playing off of what we're saying a little bit. Yeah, because I feel like because it's supposed to be like the good times for Mildred's life, I mean, I think a bunch of Americans in the throes of World War II prior to VE Day and VJ Day, I think that if the audience would have been like cried foul again, there's like there's no truth in this art and turned against the movie. yeah. It's like, well, oh, what a horrible situation. She has a really successful restaurant business. Poor her, you know. Um, but yeah, so, okay, so those are my quick facts. I don't know if you had any to throw in or if you kind of want to dive into the movie. I'd say, let's, try, let's dive into the movie. Okay, sounds good. Um, I'm not particularly, you know, familiar with a lot of the cast besides Joan Crawford. Is, is there anyone else that you kind of want to talk about a little bit that stands out to you? I mean, what was it at the, one of the things that, um, I th- I've seen Jack Carson who plays Wally in this. I've, I've seen him in, in a few other things, but it's like, it's, he got a face and a voice that like looks very familiar. I'm just trying to rack my brain what I've seen him in. And according to Wikipedia, oh, he's also in a cat in a hot tin roof. I'm like, okay, now I understand. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. I've seen that and I've seen him in it did think he looked familiar so good call um 
And then actually, like I said before, like my girlfriend like pointed out the the woman who plays the like the maid to Mildred, like she's actually from Gone with the Wind. Right. Yeah. The one that what, what's her name in the movie? It's uh oh it's like oh gosh, it's uh, Lottie? I think it is Lottie. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, uh Butterfly McQueen who plays Lottie mm-hmm. in this. And like I had totally it went past me and I didn't realize it and Jess sits up, she's like, is that was she gone with the wind? And I'm like, uh, let me check. And I'm like, wow, you really <laughs> using me on movie trivia. And it's something that doesn't happen too often. So I, she was quite proud of herself like that. And I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of you. Like, like, damn, I didn't like that. And I didn't even get that. Yeah. I, I looked her up after the movie cause she's in it quite a lot. Um, and I didn't realize she was in gone with the wind either until I looked that up. But, um, it was interesting to read about and, you know, she kind of got, pigeonholed at the time into a lot of roles like this um and she didn't really love that and then she kind of had a tragic end to her life um she lived to be old but there was like a fire and because she was trying to light something and and the house caught on fire and she died of i think the injury from the fire oh geez yeah i was like oh man i wish i had not read that um you know, it's like I was reading all these positive things and then got to that. I was like, oh, my gosh. But, um, yeah, I good call on your girlfriend because, yeah, I would not have thought of that. But only after reading about it. Because, like, if you think of, like, the supporting characters in Gone the Way, you think of Mammy first, mm-hmm. the one, the woman who won the Oscar. Right, and so, right. so that's the one you usually kind of zero in on. And so, like, she would have picked that up. I was like, damn, like, I was, like... Like I just gave her a look. I was just like I just like a proud look on my face. I'm just like, because she said she, she confesses like I have a terrible memory sometimes, and I was like I'm really impressed by this, and so <laughs> it was it was a lovely lovely moment right there because of it, and a lot of the other cast like you, had, um besides those two like are un- not really recognizable to yeah. me, but I think that's I think that's a benefit for this movie because you can just mm-hmm. see them as a character, so not just oh it's these stars playing these these roles true i agree with that well if that's the case let's go ahead and dive into the movie itself what what are some of your favorite scenes i think i i'd be remiss not to gush over the production design of like this possibly big beach house at the very beginning of the movie <laughs> that has like oh yeah with the circular spiral staircase and you're like how big is this beach house i mean this looks like like a McMansion on the inside. Anyway, it's like a TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside. <laughs> um, and how you know it's like a film noir. By the third shot in the movie, we have we have a gentleman being murdered by a gun. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're this like, is- oh, okay. It set the tone for the movie for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then like it's, and then we're, we're, Mildred is brought in for questioning and the police station, it's incredibly quiet. And it's specifically so like everybody's just kind of, just writing their reports and it makes you feel uncomfortable. All you hear mm-hmm. is the clicking of the clock. But then you forget about it when we get to the flashbacks of the good times in Mildred's life and you kind of forget, oh, right, this is a, a murder mystery that we're, we've are we been in this entire time. I know. You, you kind of spend so much of the movie, you almost forget about the murder at the end. And, and then you're kind of like, okay, this is all going to end with someone being murdered and then about halfway through, you know, we realize she's going to marry Monty. You know, it, it takes a while to get there. It's a kind of a slow burn. It is. And I think it's a, it's, but it's never a slog. It's never, it's kind no, of like, no, no. 
You're never just like looking at your watch like, all right, can something happen? It's always interesting. And it's one of the things that keeps the drama going. It's like, how creepy are these dudes going to get throughout the movie? Especially (laughs) Monty towards Vita, Mildred's daughter. You know, like, how far is this relationship going to go? Okay, how far is it going to go from here now? Yeah, it's kind of like, because we know there's a murder and we suspect, or it's heavily implied that, you know, in our minds, it's her or one of these men. So what's, what's going to push her over the edge uh, in terms of them treating her badly? Or what is going to be that one key giveaway that makes us think, okay, this guy did it, you know? And I feel like that's why they have such a negative presence in the film. Yeah. And, and it's not one of those flicks that's like, it's a, a he like a man hating kind of movie. It's not like that. <laughs> no, no. Um, like, because even Mildred has some kind of a reconciliation with her first husband who left her for another woman. Um, it, it's an odd way, like that he's willing to confess in order to protect, uh, his daughter, the one who actually committed the murder spoilers. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> um, because like you think at the very beginning, like Bert's kind of like when we, the first real interaction between Bert and Mildred in the beginning of the movie, where he's like, he's out of work. He, he's kind of lethargic about what his uh, prospects are going to be like in the future. And him and her, he and Mildred have a falling out right before our eyes. And so you think going forward, oh, he's just going to be the husband that left this woman for another woman. But no, that he's actually a man who just fell out of love with Mildred and but still cares about the children. He's not like completely abandoning the family altogether. Yeah, and- I feel like he was depressed because like there's a weird through line with Mildred where she keeps ending up with men that do not want to work you notice like so you know her her first husband doesn't have a job like you said and all these bills are piling up and she's like how am i going to make these bills work she starts baking cakes on the side he criticizes her for that and she's like you know she kind of takes it but she's also kind of like well, what are we going to do like all these bills are piling up i can't afford stuff for my daughter this is like the first time we find out that one of the daughters is kind of spoiled because she wants this really expensive dress that she buys her. And then, uh, and then, like you said, not only is he not getting a job, but he's cheating on her. Um, and then she ends up kind of putting her foot down and he moves out. Um, but I think later he has that turn where I think even somewhat inspired by her success a little bit, maybe he starts to get a real job and like, um, turn his life around because you got to imagine what the expectations of a man and woman's roles in in that in that time in america Mm -hmm. like it was supposed to be like although the wife stays at home and raises the kids and the husband goes out and earns a living for the family that's what the expect that was the expectation for back then and how birds being upstaged by his wife who was not only raising the children uh in a very posh lifestyle much to his chagrin, but also making a better living than him. Mm-hmm. So I, I can imagine that's a real kick to the his ego, seeing uh, military success, and then it continues it to flourish as a business owner. Yeah. And, you know, there's another thing that happened, too. Um, the daughter makes a comment about, you know, if she married Wally in the film, she's like, if you married him, you know, 
she's like, well, I'm not in love with him. And she's like, well, but if you married him, then maybe we could have like the limousine back and stuff like that. So apparently one time Bert was successful and then he lost success. And maybe that's what kind of put him in the funk. And he started looking elsewhere as maybe he felt, you know, bogged down by his domestic life a little bit. Yeah. And it's so weird that 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 came up because I actually was listening to an interview recently that Michael Rosenbaum did of Nick Frost, the uh, you recognize him from the Cornell trilogy in Shaun the Dead, Hot Fuzz and The World's End. Right. And Nick Frost is telling a story that like his father worked for a furniture making company and he saw like he they were doing Nick Frost's family was doing well uh, for a middle class family. But like the boss was driving around a Ferrari and so Nick Frost's father left to start his own business, but it failed and resulting in them going on welfare. And mm. so and it sent Nick Frost's father into a deep depression for 10 years and resulting in his mother, like, resulting in Nick Frost's mother having to kind of keep the family together and, and, and trying to survive. So I can understand where Bert's coming from, where like, oh, that can happen where you're just like you get up in a stagnant state because of your lack of success and what your family probably thinks of you because you have a lack of success. Well, and at that time, you know, we live in such a different world now where it's like if you lose a job, um, you get another one, you know, but back then it's like people work for the same company for 10, 15, 20 years. They're supposed to like kind of take care of you, you know, so to lose a career is is maybe different back then than it would be today. Um, but yeah, certainly he's under a lot of pressure. They both are. And maybe it's a little bit of a critique at like, well, women should stay home and men should work. And it's like, well, here's an example of why that doesn't always work out. You know, she wanted to be a stay at home mom. She was content to raise the children and support her husband, but that didn't work out, you know? So she had to shift gears and for someone that's never been in the workforce at all, what can she really do? Like that scene where she gets the job at the restaurant, you know, um, where she notices they're having struggling and she says, Hey, I want a job. And they go, have you ever worked in a restaurant? And she's like, well, no, which, you know, luckily a restaurant, I mean, you can walk in the door and be like, I'll work here. And they would go, okay, we'll train you. (laughs) Like, you know, they always need people. Um, but it, it also showcases the fact that she doesn't have any work experience. So when her husband decides to leave and I apparently at first doesn't support them in any way, I guess, cause he doesn't have a job. Um, how is she going to earn money? Well, the only thing she can do is wait tables, which apparently comes with a stigma attached to it. Sounds like waiting tables is almost like I'm a bar fly or something. I mean, it really horrifies her spoiled daughter, right? Yeah. And like that's why it's one of the first lines of voiceover when you go into this flashback where Mildred says like as far back as like I remember I've always been in the kitchen I've never I don't remember my life up to that point not being in the kitchen so that's what like all right society was like oh you're a woman you're supposed to be in the kitchen uh, making food for the family so on and so forth but now she has to be proactive in the fact that no I got to go out get a job in the workforce and even though it pays well and she's good at it, it's not good enough for her daughter. And maybe this is another reason why I I had such a frustration with the character of Vito is because my mom was a waitress uh, most of my life. So I... Yeah, I there's nothing... A... There's no shame in that. But maybe this is a little bit of a 
critique on classism too, right? Oh, without a you doubt. Know? Yeah. But I... yeah, it's like other people don't view that job that same way. But maybe also in 1945, if you see a woman her age waiting, waiting tables, you're thinking, well, why isn't her husband providing for her? Why is she here? Is she single? Is she unmarried? You know what I mean? It, maybe that's why it came with more baggage. Yeah, like, oh, I heard she's a spinster. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, her daughter, you know, had that comment in the film. Uh, we, we see so many bad sides of her throughout the film, but the first worst one was um, her reaction to the dress that her mother had saved so hard for. And she said it looked cheap and she'd never be caught dead in it. Oh, and her geez. mother has this reaction that I think we're not expecting because you kind of expect her to go in there and, I don't know, give her a spanking. It's 1945. But <laughs> instead, she's devastated. Um, and so when she hides that she has this waitressing job from her daughter because she knows this is going to be an issue, but apparently makes so much money. They have like all those nice things in their house and they can even get a nanny. And it's like, oh, wow, I wish that paid that much now. <laughs> like, that's yeah. great. Like. What kind of bustling metropolis has she's working in that it's like really? it's it's a uh, it's making that much money that she's able to do that? Sure, she does have the side hustle making pies, but still, it's it is amazing that she's able to provide so much for her family because based off that job, and then turn it into oh, I'm going to start my own business and not just turn it into a business but a franchise like business. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. Um it's it's just really interesting it, it's clearly a different time but this is where another scene happens with vita that had my blood boiling um <sighs> and that's when she forces lottie the matress who by the way i mean we've mentioned already is a woman of color and uh she forces her to wear the waitressing outfit as a message to her mom like this is what I think of you. So both classist and racist, um, just all around bad. And her mother, you know, finally tells her daughter, like, um, you know, they have this confrontation. She's like, well, I snooped around your things and I found out what you do and I don't like it. And, um, you know, I'm so ashamed and results in her mother slapping her, which I think you said was one of your favorite parts. <laughs> I was uh, right there with you. Yeah. I know. Like we're not supposed to child abuse, but like, <laughs> for the purposes of this movie it is highly deserved like i can imagine 1945 audiences cheering at that moment for like that and then her mother has such instant regret she goes she goes i would rather cut off my hand than do that it's like you just feel so bad for mildred because she is trying so dang hard and like it's never enough for vita and we do we at this point we don't know how far that's really gonna go but we've definitely got a window into what she sees. And man, I have to say, I thought about my mom and like felt like calling her and saying, hey, thank you for everything. I'm so sorry <laughs> if I've ever been a Vita. Like it just <laughs> it, it was just hard to, to watch because you're like, man, um, you know, kids don't understand, obviously, what their parents sacrifice. And I, I know for a fact there were bratty times when I was growing up where I really didn't get it. You know, I think the worst one, not the worst, but one thing that I did was I remember one time I, I told my dad I wanted to go out to eat and he said, honey, you know, that restaurant you like to go to, it's kind of expensive and we can eat for free here. And I said, well, to me, every meal's free. <laughs> and my dad was Ooh. just started laughing and he was like, 
That's true, but it's not the case for me. So we're still eating at home. <laughs> Sorry. Uh. <laughs> and it's like, I had no idea what I was saying. I just was like, well, I think it's free. And now as an adult, I'm like, man, what a smart ass thing to say. I can't even believe I said that. Uh. But at the time, I didn't really understand the weight of it. So not quite as bad as Vita. Um, but, you know, kids well. do care about their clothes and and they don't care about how much it costs. You know, they don't really get it. But Vita takes it to another level. Well, I think, A, it's a good thing that you recognize that moment. And he's like, no, I'm not going to be like that. Like, again, not going to make kind of cruel comments or what have you. I think that shows <laughs> growth so and is a good person. Me. I don't think Vita would be like that. I should be like, like, yeah, she'd just be like, she'd just snap her fingers and expect that. And it's fine that you mentioned before that when Vita tells Milligan, I want you to marry Wally so we can have, be successful, but I don't love him. So, and Milligan's like, Vita, how could you say something like that? And that's just a breadcrumb to see how far she'll go for money to the point that she'll marry a rich person or a well-off person, uh, fake a pregnancy, and then divorce that per- that person in order to get $10,000 out of that dude. Yeah, I, you know, there an argument could be made that her mother marrying Wally, even if she's not in love with him, would have been the easiest thing for them to do. Um, because things are so difficult back then. I mean, let's be honest, probably tons of people got married that didn't love each other, right? I mean, there wasn't really a way for women to, to provide for themselves. So they kind of had to make those kind of decisions and... You know, that's why parents were always like, marry up, marry rich, because that's your only option, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, Joan Crawford's character, Mildred, is true to her word, true to her principles. And in her mind, she doesn't want to do that. And hey, she's already been through a marriage that was pretty bad. Why would she want to marry another guy she doesn't love? Right. Yeah. So, you know, she she knows that this is a complicated thing and that she's picking the harder path. But Ultimately, she wants what's best for her and her daughters, and Wally isn't it. And I think she senses something within Wally that we pick up on later that's not great about him and is more nuanced even than just, I don't love him. But she's obviously not going to tell her daughter that. Um, You know, Wally pushes boundaries. He's controlling. um, He uses his money and his status to get things out of her. So she's... She, he doesn't respect her physical boundaries either. doesn't seem to respect her desires. So she's she can't tell her daughter all that. <laughs> she's just like, I don't love him. That's all. Um, but you're right. This is definitely a window into what her daughter is capable of in that money is her number one driving factor. And that, that enables her to do all kinds of horrible things. It is. And it's. I'm glad you used that word enabled because Mildred enables her. She does. She she does it out of love. And honestly, I'm sure a lot of parents have done these kinds of things where they do things they didn't want to do. They spent money they didn't want to spend and they indulge people they don't want to indulge because they love their children. And it's unfortunate, but we can sort of understand why she did it. But still from far away, we're like, lock this kid up, send her to boarding school. <laughs> Get her out of here. Yeah. And to the point that I saw something, this is a couple of years ago, but I'm getting off the expressway at one point on, on an off ramp and I'm at a stoplight and right in front of me is a bright 
red Mercedes-Benz, brand new, sparkling. And the license plate, red daddy's girl. And I'm just, mm. and I'm just like, oh boy, it must be nice. <laughs> I know, especially in this day and age, does anything get our blood boiling more than like a trust fund kid? I mean, it just makes everybody mad to begin with. And when they act spoiled and terrible, it's even worse. And this movie's got two of those. Um, yeah. <laughs> we haven't even talked about him yet, but you know, Monty is basically the male version of Vita. And I think that's why they, rather so than repel attracted. each other, yeah. they're attracted to each other because they have the exact same carnal desires. Yeah. So Monty is, um, you know, she wants, like you mentioned earlier, Mildred wants to get this restaurant business off the ground. And she asks Wally for help. He does help her. He's always asking for a little reward, which is creepy. Um, but then mm-hmm. Monty enters the picture. Monty's got the money. And he's handsome. And he's charming. And Mildred is attracted to him. It's interesting. The people that she ends up being the most like attracted to or wants to be the closest to are like the worst for her. Um, but Monty at first is very, you know, charming and awesome. But he takes her to that beach house that we saw at the beginning of the film. And, um, you know, she they have a great weekend together. Um, but she notices a lot of stuff about him. Like he's got all these bathing suits so he probably takes a ton of women out here. Um, but he's claiming that he's in love with her and all that. And then this leads to another motivation of another way we find out why the mother does so much for Vita, right? Yeah, that it's just like wants to provide the best for her. And then Monty is living off his trust fund and becomes a one-third partner in the business that Mildred starts. So it would be Mildred, Wally, and uh, oh, 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 I can't remember the gentleman's name now. Monty. Monty, excuse yeah. me. Um, at first, it seems like, oh, it's like a perfect, it's a perfect symbiosis of three people coming together to do this and how things get out of hand rather quickly. Yeah, I mean, you know, Monty, um, yeah, one red flag with Monty is he doesn't do anything. He said, does, what does he say? That he lounges or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> And this is a trend. Like I said, her first husband didn't have the job. Her second husband, well, we we later find out she marries him, right? But the second person she's interested in also doesn't work. And this is a red flag to her right away. She's like, hmm, I'm getting myself into this again with somebody that I don't really, you know, that seems great at first. But then as I get to know them, they're not so great. Um, Also, that trip ends with finding out that her second daughter uh, is really sick, right? Yeah, like the youngest of the two daughters between Bert and Mildred, uh, Bert had picked up Vita, and the other daughter's name I'm like I I'm, I can't remember her name either. But there is a comment that's kind of telling in the movie too that he said that she tries so hard for Vita, but she's got this other daughter that loves her so much that's perfect. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and I think that's a theme, right, in the movie of her falling for people or being attracted to or addicted to pleasing people she can't really please. Uh, yeah, the other daughter Kay, Kay, okay, uh, comes down with pneumonia when they're like out uh, up in uh, the mountains, and succumbs to that and passes away from it. But 
I I enjoy. Uh, I say I don't enjoy. I enjoy when this child dies. This movie. Yeah, I thought. <laughs> no, uh, I know I'll, what you meant. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, the, the moment where the woman that Bert left uh, Mildred for, like they're at her house when they're they're taking care of Kay, like is is not. There's no anger or bitterness between the two the two women. It's never just yeah. like and, and like no, she wants to help. Mildred in her time of need. I mean, it's so easy to be like, "What are you doing here? This is my house. What are you doing here?" Yada yada yada. It's been easy drama to build up, but no, it's done respectfully and more honestly. Because you imagine, like, you're like, "Yeah, this is your home," but this is you're you're the awkward person at the party, and so you're like, "All right, I gotta be careful here." And that she does, and that Kay passes away just saying mommy and that she couldn't help her. And now that he's saying that how Mildred wants to please people and get uh, ends up involved with people that, she, that are bad for her, it almost seems like I can change him kind of person. Yeah, like, yeah. And I'm just like, oh no, Code that's really bad. I don't want her for that. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing is like when this daughter dies, now she's pouring everything into Vita. You know, her life becomes about Vita even more than it was before because she lost that other daughter. Right. You're right. Because she doubles down on the spoiling to the point that she gets Vita a brand new convertible. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, Lord, that is spoiling upon spoiling and... And I'm saying, like, obviously, parents spoil their children. That's what they do. Sure. If they're if they're able to, that's what they're able to do. They want to. They want the but best have, for their kids. No, you got to know where to draw the line. Right. Uh, and and we also find out that Vita has been double dipping. Right. Like, not only is her mother spoiling her constantly, but she's borrowing money from people and stuff like that. It, we later find out it's mirroring the behavior of Monty, who blows through all his money as well because he doesn't do anything right he just he ends up having to borrow money or depend on the kindness of others including mildred uh which is what makes her fall out of love and with him because he keeps borrowing money from her and she's eventually just like you're you know you're kind of crappy and then her daughter starts doing that same thing yeah and only mary and mildred only marries monty as a business proposition mm-hmm it's not a loving. It's not a loving marriage whatsoever, even though it has the facade of that. And it's yeah. all done to make Vita happy, and also to keep Monty away from Vita. Yes, yeah, because we start to notice early on that there's some weirdness with the daughter and Monty. Um, you know, Vita is attracted to Monty because to her he's the ideal, uh, because he's really indulging. And living this high lifestyle that she desires. So to her, you know, he's the best person to follow, even though he's like broke, <laughs> ultimately. And he even marries Mildred because he asked for a third of her share. And she agrees in order to protect her daughter. Um, but Monty has no qualms on still hitting on now his stepdaughter uh if that just because he's married to mildred now right because he's like oh, i'm gonna divorce you and oh no vita suggests like oh monty's gonna divorce you and now he and i are gonna get married and i'm like oh my word i know and this is after so many things have happened like 
um, you know, her daughter ran away. They had that horrible falling out where she was like, I'm always going to be embarrassed of you and I'm stealing money and stuff because someday I'm going to li- run away and be rich with somebody better than you. And that's when she's like, you need to get the hell out. <laughs> and then she goes and works at that, like, I guess, tiki bar where she's like, this is incredibly, extremely salacious in 1945 for her to be working there. It's almost like she's a stripper. Um, and, and a direct message to her mom, I feel like sort of like pouting, like, well, if you don't give me everything I want, then I'm going to be this harlot or whatever at this club and she won't come home. And she's like, well, what if I can give you like everything you want? And she's like, well, you'll never be able to do that. And then she marries Monty. She gets that old mansion. She fixes it up and it works, right? Her, her ex-husband, brings her daughter back and her daughter's like, I've really changed this time. It's all going to be different. And then immediately backstabs her and tries to get with Monty. Uh. And you're just, by this point, you're like, you are the biggest idiot of all time. Also, they have that party for her daughter. Um, and at the party, you know, the mom is, has to take a business call and finds out that um, her Money isn't doing well because she's been overspending like crazy to get Vita back. And also Monty has sold his share, right? Yeah. So and just every possible way to F her over Monty and Vita do that. Like it's like extravagant to the nth degree. It's almost Charles Forster Kane level of Yeah. Of expend expenditures. Like I'm half expecting her to build Xanadu in California. <laughs> right. And that's, it's and that's absurd. where they were staying. And they kind of poke fun at that with remember Lottie, like when the dad comes, she's like, Oh, I have to announce you. And like they're like playing roles almost because they're trying to fit Vita's obsessions. And and this is where Bert gets sort of redeemed, right? Like you talked about earlier, like Bert in that moment when he brought Vita back, he we find out he's doing well. Um, he granted the divorce because he like you know back then divorce was a big deal even if you weren't getting along so and he had reason to kind of keep her around since she's successful but he had let go by this point he'd done his own you know restructuring in his life and he brought Mildred back and now they have a good relationship with each other but he still doesn't like Monty and for good reason but this also plants in our head well who's going to ultimately kill Monty right Right, because we have a list of subjects uh, uh, of suspects because we obviously have because we think Mildred did it because we see from a point of view of Monty being killed and his last word is Mildred. So you think Mildred is probably the prime suspect along with Bert, maybe Wally or Vita. Mm -hmm. And Mildred tries to take the fall after Bert uh, tries to take the fall, even though his alibi is like, no, we know where you are. You are not the one who did this. Yeah. Um, and Wally, uh, he'd be kind of stupid to hang around for like a half an hour for the cops to eventually show up. Right. And like Wally, you know, by this point in the movie, like he makes that comment when everything falls apart and she's like, well, you're turning on me and da, 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 da. And he's like, Hey, you married him. And I didn't do this. I'm just, I'm at the point now I've helped you all I can, but I, now I got to protect myself. You kind of can't blame him anymore, right? I mean, he's really indulged um, Mildred's wasting all this money. And now he's finally like, yeah, this, this is the end. But it's not my fault. You married that awful guy. Um, yeah. and, and, and it builds up in our mind like, I mean, Mildred has been double-crossed so many times at this point. Once she finally has that confrontation, you know, she goes to the house. We know she's going to go there and have this big confrontation. But I'll be honest. 
I realized towards the I was like, that daughter did it. I was unsure. Like, I didn't know if it was between Nita Vita or Mildred. And when, especially when Mildred was like, or not Mildred, but when her daughter Vita was like, we're going to get married. And then Monty was like, no, we're not. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> not smart, Monty. No. And like that, that, you're right. That pretty much signed his death warrant right then and there. Um, But it is curious that. That Vita does commit the murder and Mildred once again. Um, well, she helps. almost killed him. I mean, she did come with the gun, right? Yes. We did find that out. So we're kind of like, well, that's surprising. Like, we do know that she pulled a gun on him. And then he was like, think, you know, this isn't smart. And she was like, okay. So I, I think in some way she felt a little responsible, maybe. Yeah, d- definitely. Yeah. And I think it's the reason why that she tries to take the fall for her daughter. Trying mm-hmm. to help her one last time, uh, but not even Mildred could help her at this point because Vita is eventually picked up by the police and brought to justice. And it, it ends on a triumphant note when it comes to uh, the laws of the land, but at what cost to this family? Well, and the daughter makes one more idiotic betrayal. Where they bring her in and they tell her, hey, your mom flipped on you. And she immediately goes, you said you wouldn't tell. It's like, you, and she's like, Vita, shut up. <laughs> like, they wouldn't uh-huh. have had a direct confession if she hadn't done that. But she just is so self-serving. She can't think outside the box. So, and then it's funny when she's kind of like, okay, mom, help me. And she's like, okay, I, I can't anymore. Like, that's all I've done my whole life. And, and this, I mean... You're going down, <laughs> you know. Yeah, like I, I can only imagine Vita in prison of all places and how she'd cope with that existence. Yeah, it's not going to be fun for her, but oh well, too bad. Yeah, not a lot. <laughs> a oh, don't bad. worry, no, I don't feel too bad. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it kind of ends on a positive note, I guess. But yeah, the whole family's decimated. Her finances are in ruin. So I don't know. <laughs> it, it seems like of like the crime stories of the time where justice prevails, mm-hmm. but it like it's the people around it that get caught in the crossfire. Like you think of all like the Warner Brothers gangster movies, like all the gangsters die at the end of the movies, or yes. they 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 become cowards and they repent for what they've done, um, and everybody else has to pick up the pieces afterwards. Very much like this, but. It, it, but it has that weird, like, the Max Steiner score throughout has been very, very moving and very dramatic. But it has that kind of triumphant feeling at the end. And you're just, like, wondering, like, yes, justice prevailed. But all that's left now is Mildred and Bert. And what do they have left afterwards? Yeah, they've lost both their kids, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and, and you know, uh, Monty gets killed. So, like, I guess he kind of got what he deserved in the context of the film. And then, like you said, the daughter goes to prison. So the two bad guys are gone, but they've just done so much damage that it's like, well, yeah, but what's left? Like you said. Yeah. I mean, Wally's never going to speak to Mildred again, because you just tried yeah. to pin a murder on him. <laughs> right. I know. It's like, Wally wasn't a great guy, but that was a bad move. Um, and 
yeah, it's like, you know, I don't know, did, will poor Mildred ever finally realize that that wasn't the right call? Will she be able to start over? Yeah, they don't, it, it doesn't wrap up in a tidy bow. So in so many ways, the movie is, is different for its time. Yeah, and I think that's why I keep coming back to it because it leaves you asking questions, not in a frustrating way, yeah, but in a fascinating way where you're like, I wonder where they've gone now. It's better to, uh, it's kind of like how you have scene structures. You want to get in late and get out early. Mm-hmm. So the movie ends at the right time because it leaves you, your walk to the movie, out of the movie theater or to your car, just wondering, okay, I wonder what happened there. And it sparks conversations where all good movies do. Yeah, true, true. Well, was there anything else in the film that we haven't touched on yet? We kind of blasted through. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I mean, like I know, like we said before, that we kind of said like Joan Crawford, like in the like looks department, you think like, oh, she's not like the, the like you'd say like the great beauties of that time, but like no, like at one point when she's in the bathing suit with Monty, like oh no, yeah. that is a beautiful couple right there. They're a good looking couple. It makes sense why they would be attracted to each other. Yeah, uh, I think you kind of forget about her beauty because she's so. There's so much more to her, and the movie plays on that. And she's a little older, um, but yeah, underneath she's this beautiful woman that's very guarded. Very much so, and it's kind of like the flip version of Marilyn Monroe because Marilyn Monroe was one of the, the beauties of her time, but she was a very smart woman and a very capable woman. But it, it, you can't, like pop culture just boils her down to just being yeah, a she sex just icon. kind of played dumb, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's definitely a different a different take. Uh, but I love how like the I think the movie looks gorgeous. I mean, there's so yeah. many shadows. There's so much like it, it like even though it, it's the story is a melodrama about a family, but it's photographed as a pure film noir, and I think that's what yeah. makes it stand it out. I agree. Yeah, as I said, noir. I started to falter. I was like, does this not count? Because it's like so different. But I'm glad you're confirming. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I say like, if people like this, there's another movie called, um, Flamingo Road, I think also has, is Joan Crawford in that? I'm not sure, but another Michael Curtiz movie like this, oh. uh, that is a melodrama, but a film noir at the, at the core of it. And I highly recommend it. it yeah. It is also Joan Crawford. Um, and that came out actually the following, it came out four years later in 49, so if people listen to the show, check out the movie and want more, I'd say check out Flamingo Road. That may or may not be on HBO Max because it's another Warner's title. Oh, nice. Okay, I'll have to look that up. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that brings me to my last couple of questions. If you had to sum up what we've talked about, uh, what keeps you coming back to this film? What keeps me coming back to this movie is... It's the examination about greed but not in a heavy-handed way yeah that's true that's a good point and just the performances throughout i mean because like i said joan crawford is in 99 percent of the scenes of this movie and owns the screen whatever she's on and we go through so many emotions of triumph and sadness and loving and longing that we go through a whole journey in this movie and able to do that under two hours i think is a uh a masterstroke 
Yeah, I think the movie does a good job of showcasing somebody who she's like a really good person, but she's so she's got a lot of walls up and I think it sort of gives off the appearance of her not being like a warm loving person, but she just showed her love in a different way, sort of through gifting, I guess. <laughs> but I I think that's interesting about it, um showing like a really good female character that is different from your standard female character. Uh, the fact that it's shot like a noir film and that she's sort of almost like a femme fatale that isn't. Uh, the movie's got mystery and drama and all the, all kinds of stuff. It's just all around a joy to watch. Um, what would you say to someone that you're suggesting this movie to? Like, how, how would you pitch this film to somebody? I would pitch this movie by asking them a question. Would you like to see a film noir from the 40s, but not one of the usual suspects? Yeah, and one that's a that good you point. might expect it from. Because, like, another version of this movie would be like bitter, aging wife, murder, husband. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like, that's what we're used to. And, um, or is jealous of a younger woman or something. You know, that this is none of that, right? The younger woman is her daughter. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's just, and her main motivation isn't a man, it's her, it's her children. And that's also different than those kind of films. Right. I mean, the plot that you just, you just kind of spitball like that's the plot of a Alfred Hitchcock presents episode right yeah, there. Yeah, I would watch that. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a lot of people that are surprised when women like film noir, and they are, and and also a lot of LGBT people as well, like are sort of drawn to these strong female characters. Um, and I think the reason is because for the time that was like their most powerful role they could be in. So it's like interesting that in this movie, it's even more powerful than the typical noir film. So that's enough of a recommend. Hopefully you'll check it out. Yeah, because uh, you probably make an argument that is a good percentage of the film noirs out there that the female lead in the movie ends up winning in the end, whether they're the, the antagonist or protagonist. Is... Yeah, and there's something empowering about that, even if they're the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. And I could see somebody like Lauren Bacall, who was a starlet at the time, but like you can kind of tell, like, I don't know, it's going to sound me, but like, no, like you can tell, like, like, is not as feminine as other starlets at the time. You can kind of like make Mm -hmm. that argument there. You can see why LGBTQ plus uh, members of that community can be attracted and find her performances in movies empowering. Yeah. And that, and another way I've heard it described is, the leads in those movies, especially when they're bad guys, really, they are pushing back on the conventions of what they're supposed to be doing. Um, So, you know, the traditional role of the woman, they're going beyond that agency that they typically get to have by being the bad guy, by committing crimes, by telling people what to do. And so that appeals to any group of people that has felt like they are have been sort of put in a box and like this is what you're supposed to be like watching somebody be free from that is appealing you know i wholeheartedly agree yeah but um tim this this has been such a great discussion i'm so glad that you suggested this movie i really enjoyed watching it it was i didn't get to watch it with nick but the second uh that he got home i was like oh my gosh i just like told him the whole plot right away (laughs) and um he enjoyed my rendition of it um but or at least he pretended to um but (laughs) thank you so much for for coming on and uh you know definitely hope to have you back soon yeah and like it's so funny when we're doing these last few questions and talking about 
film noir as a genre overall. I'm like, oh, if I ever come back on, like, oh, I got to talk about, we could talk about this movie or that movie and have a field day of lesser known film noirs that we could have a great conversations over them. Oh, that sounds good to me. I can't wait for that. Again, thank you so much. <laughs> of course. Thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate this. <laughs>